The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Help! I need somebody! Help! Not just anybody! Help! You know I need someone! Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome to Episode 183 of Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host. After retiring from medical practice, I became an activist for family caregiving. Our topic today is hope and healing for family caregivers caring for family members with Alzheimer's disease. Alzheimer's disease is a brain disease that can't be stopped, reversed or cured. It's not a normal part of aging, though it's increasingly likely to affect people as they age. It slowly destroys memory and thinking. It slowly destroys the ability to carry out the simplest of tasks. It slowly destroys the ability to communicate. Someone well down the road of Alzheimer's disease may not be able to communicate that they have a painful sore in their mouth. Instead, they may become aggressive or even violent. It slowly destroys the ability to recognize even members of the person's own family. And it may be linked with bleeding in the brain that causes strokes, as our guest studies highlight. But with Alzheimer's disease, there is hope and healing, all of which is why our topic, Hope and Healing for Family Caregivers Caring for Family Members with Alzheimer's Disease, is so important. And to discuss it, our guest is Dr. Tiffany Chow. Now, Tiffany is Senior Clinical Scientist at Baycrest Rotman Research Institute and Staff Behavioral Neurologist at Baycrest Sam and Ida Ross Memory Clinic. She holds a dual appointment as Associate Professor of Neurology and Geriatric Psychiatry at the University of Toronto. She authored the book, The Memory Clinic, in which she shares stories of hope and healing for persons with Alzheimer's disease and for their families. She developed a popular website for children, children who are caregivers to middle-aged parents with dementia. And she authored an educational activity book for children too young to access the internet. She cares for patients with early onset dementias in her Baycliffe clinic. She researches and explores neuroimaging to identify biomarkers for use in diagnosis. She actively participates as a medical advisory council member of the International Association for Frontotemporal Degeneration. Welcome to the show, Tiffany. Thanks so much for inviting me to join you and uh, to try to help support caregivers. Let's go. Now, question. 
question number one for you is, Tiffany, please tell us more about your career and also about your own family's experience of family caregiving. Uh, well, I, uh, I actually thought I was going to start off as an obstetrician gynecologist at the complete opposite end of life from uh, the patient population that I work with now. But over time, I realized that neurology uh, provides a great opportunity to build a relationship between the doctor and the patient and the patient's family. And uh, I found it quite compelling. And uh, as I became more of a behavioral neurologist, studying behaviors, personality quirks, that arise uh, as a result of a brain disorder, I realized that the bread and butter was going to be dementia. And so now in my clinical practice, I see patients who have dementia. Uh, In my research work, I look at um, their brain images. And uh, so my own family experience of uh, caregiving uh, is one that's uh, quite a large piece of humble pie. Uh, My grandmother, Aquan, about whom I write in the book, uh, had a rather large brain hemorrhage that ended her life at age 86. And I was a neurology resident at the time. I went to Hawaii the next day, and I saw the CT scan of her head and agreed it was a very large hemorrhage. It was causing a midline shift. Certainly this would end her life, and she never woke up from it. Many, 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 many years later, uh, after her death, it occurred to me, that some of the images that I see of patients who have amyloid deposition related to Alzheimer's disease in the small arterioles of the brain cause a hemorrhage that looks like the one that grandma had. And then I started to piece it together backwards, but of course very slowly. And so at least 10 years after her death, I realized that my grandmother actually had had Alzheimer's disease and that that had ended her life. But interestingly... None of us had recognized any of her late-life changes as being symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. And this is absolutely not uncommon. I think there are many families who come to my clinic not really convinced that their loved one actually has a dementia. Sometimes it's actually the patient themselves who's more worried than anybody else around them. And uh, so it's easy to uh, fly under the radar, so to speak, if uh, you're having some changes in cognition as you get older, and the challenges are to determine whether there's something that we should or could be doing to help people compensate for that. In my family, I'm lucky because my grandmother did some of the things that you could do to build your cognitive reserve. She had a very close relationship with my grandfather, so he was probably covering for some of her deficits. But uh, they get along really well together and we're living a very full life right up until the day she died. Tiffany, I just want to clarify something. I started off by talking about Alzheimer's disease. You've talked about dementia. What's the relation between the two? Uh, Very good question. Dementia can be caused by a number of different uh, disorders that are different under the microscope when you look at the brain. Alzheimer's disease is the most common cause of dementia among the older population, and by older I mean over the age of 65. Another cause of dementia would be dementia with Lewy bodies, which is sort of like a combination of Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's, and it features those types of proteins. Another type of dementia would be frontotemporal dementia. So dementia describes someone who's having, uh, as you said, slow, uh, in the introduction, slow progressive changes in cognition or behavior that make it 
impossible for them to function independently. And so as you can imagine, there are many things that could bring you to that, including strokes, and we call that vascular dementia. Right. Now, I'm going to stop you now because I want to get to your book. Um, your book, The Memory Clinic. Tell us about it, and also please tell us why you wrote it. I, um, I have to credit my literary agent, who uh, I met at a party quite randomly. And uh, when she met me, she assumed I was a writer because there were other writers there. And I said, no, actually, I'm just a neurologist, and I do research in dementia. And she said, oh, well, uh, why would a young, lively person like you be interested in such a, a devastating and, and sort of dark pursuit? And I said, oh, it's not like that at all. And she said, well, you should write a book. And uh, it, she, she worked on me for three years before I finally realized I did have a narrative. I do have some messages that I think are important for families and caregivers to to hear. And, and I, I give these messages in my clinic and in, in a, a very um, informal way. I've been test driving these principles of Buddhism that actually work well for the mode of caregiving. And I give all kinds of examples in the book, stories that I've been wanting to share for a long time, about how families have really been able to work with this. They've been able to adapt. They've been able to get past the initial shock of a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease or another type of dementia. And that's what other caregivers need to hear. They need that kind of leadership. Right. Now, I want you to tell us fairly briefly about your memory clinic at the Baycrest Health Sciences Center and the kind of work it does. I think that our clinic still has some ways to improve to the ideal that I wish everyone could access uh, around the world for this particular problem of dementia. But our clinic is special because we're funded to have a multidisciplinary team, and I think that's the important place to start for comprehensive care of dementia. When a patient is diagnosed with dementia, that's not the only person you're taking care of. You need to take care of the family as well and support them because this is a slow illness. It can go on for 15 to 20 years. People really need to pace themselves for what's going to change and keep changing over time. So in my clinic, we are funded to have a nurse who fields calls at any time between appointments, and I think that's really vital, uh, especially as a support to caregivers who, you know, they don't have medical degrees. They don't have nursing degrees. They need to understand what's going on, and, and things pop up uh, unexpectedly. We also have a social worker a neuropsychologist, a speech pathologist, and an occupational therapist who can go into the home and help improve how things are arranged to make it easier for the patient to do as much as possible for himself. Right. So all of these things come together so that we can really embrace families and help them through all of this. Um, but it's an unfortunate reality that not all other physicians' offices can address it this so comprehensively. And so Many uh, private practices and whatnot can count on the Alzheimer's Society local branch to provide some of the counseling that we do through nursing or social work. But I think it's going to be important over time for a grassroots movement to say these are the kinds of things we need to have available everywhere. And they don't have to be in one person's clinic, but they need to somehow become accessible. So really, would it be fair to say that you're setting a standard for the future? I, I 
would like to think that we are a, a model that others try to emulate. Again, funding becomes the problem. Uh, we at Baycrest are fortunate that we have a, a very strong foundation, and also the uh, the government understands that we are innovators in geriatric care. So when we have something to propose that's a novel way of providing care, we can usually get that funding. Um, but it, it is a challenge for other far-flung areas, uh, not in urban uh, centers, to try to provide this kind of help. So we're going to have to figure out how to do that. Do we need to use telehealth to share the resources from within urban centers to more rural areas? That, that may be the, the most cost-efficient way to do it, but I, we need to work on it. Right. Now, at this point, we're going to take the break. This is where I always say we have to pay the rent. This is, <laughs> <laughs> this is Dr. Gordon Atherley. My guest is Dr. Tiffany Chow. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio for Powell River. Please stay with us. We will be back. Build a better business. Achieve that goal. Make good on that resolution. The Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. The challenges facing our teens today mean that more than ever, we need to be there to support them and encourage them. The Dr. Stem Show is here to provide discussions about topics that will help promote healthy relationships, self-image, and success for teens, parents, and the community. Our young people can achieve more in life than they ever dreamed possible. The Dr. Stem Show, hosted by Dr. Stem Malatini, will foster these discussions and encourage your participation. Listen every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific, and 9 p.m. GMT on Voice America Empowerment. The White House Doctor Makes House Calls. Listen every week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents. Now she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Live up to your fullest potential. This is the Voice America Empowerment Channel. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at FamilyCaregiversUnite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week, Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Tiffany Chow. Our topic is hope and healing for family caregivers caring for family members with Alzheimer's disease. So now let's talk about the challenges 
for professionals and for family caregivers caring for family members with this disease, Alzheimer's disease. So, Tiffany, please tell us about the challenges that you personally have experienced in your professional work, the ways in which you responded to these challenges and what you learned from them. I had spoken earlier about wanting to go into obstetrics when I was much younger and wide-eyed about what medicine could could mean. Uh, and I, I had thought about, you know, the glittering potential of new life. And then as time went on, I realized that I enjoy understanding and learning people's life histories. And I enjoyed the stories of my older patients when I was on a neurology rotation. And I realized that the privilege in getting to know them over a long doctor-patient relationship was really meaningful and inspiring to me, Uh, especially those older couples that have been together for 50 or 60 years. I I think that um, many of us uh, newlyweds can, can learn a lot from them. And so, yes, I deal with sad terminal cases. Dementia can lead you to death earlier than would have been expected. Um, but I'm, I'm getting to know not only how they were before, but I'm also getting to know the strength and the love of the family caregivers and try to mentor them, if you will, through realizing that this is a change, a life change, one that nobody planned for, one that nobody expected or wanted, yet we can address this and we can focus on certain things that can bring some satisfaction to each person's day. And I realize I actually have a talent for this in that there are opportunities to practice Buddhism, which I guess I was practicing for a long time. And then finally an old friend told me when we were talking about what we thought happens when you die, you know, you're a Buddhist. And I said, no, I'm not. I eat meat. He said, no, 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 your, your worldview about how things are constantly changing and how we should strive to just become a big part of it all and to relieve suffering wherever we can, that's, that's totally you and that's totally Buddhism. And I, it, it turned a light on for me and I started to do more reading. And it allowed me to be more clear in the messages that I give to the caregivers. My patients come to see me every six to nine months. And I spend most of that time talking to the family. I hear, I listen to what's going on at home. I try to figure out with them what are the priority issues. And I don't try to make it into a a positive spin, but I do try to make it understandable as a phenomenon of an illness that shouldn't be taken personally and that can be addressed using all the skills that we can bring together. And when I say we, I mean the family and the healthcare team together. The healthcare team has the benefit of not being emotionally, as emotionally attached to the patient. And we have no expectations for what that person should be doing or was doing 10 years ago and can't do today. And with that perspective, we can often help the family to shift into understanding what, what can we accomplish today that's important. And that is the focus. And it's, it's really been a way for me to get through this without burning out over right. a career. Now, that takes us straight into the next question, Tiffany, which is, please, would you tell us about the challenges experienced by the 
family caregivers whom you meet in your memory clinic, the ways that they responded to them or respond to them, and what you learned or are still learning from these family caregivers. Tiffany? Absolutely. The, um, there's what I called a, a dance of negotiation. And it very closely resembles those Kubler-Ross um, stages of, of, of grief. At first, there's shock and denial. Uh, this couldn't be happening. We have places to go and things to do, and uh, dementia would just get in the way. And then, after a while, the family needs to get over that and realize this is happening. Then the next stage is, okay, this is happening, and what are we going to do about it? There are many challenges in terms of how much they want to do or how much they don't want to do. And when I say dance, it is the healthcare team in partnership with the family going at the pace the family needs to go in to get over these different hurdles, getting over the denial, understanding uh, at whatever rate is feasible what the illness is, what to expect, and what are the interventions that we can offer. There's a huge challenge for caregivers, especially spousal caregivers, of patients with uh, late-life dementia because they feel like they should be the only one taking care of the patient. And I think that is wonderfully intentioned, but it is very difficult to execute well over the long course of illness. Again, it's 15 to 20 years, and you need to have not only other support for the patient, but other support for yourself as a caregiver. And so one of the overarching challenges within this dance of negotiation is the sense of who's got control. None of us has control over the dementia. And I try to model for them that there are things I don't know that I'm happy to learn with them as we go along about the patient, about how this illness is affecting the patient. And we need to remain open to all of the possibilities. And having caregivers remain open to the fact that they may need to tell somebody else what's going on in the household can be quite a hurdle. But I have seen caregivers do this in such beautiful and loving ways. It is nothing but inspirational. For instance, I have a, 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 a young, a early onset frontotemporal dementia patient who can't speak very well. When she does speak, it's the same thing over and over again. That's cute. That's cute. Whenever there's a family reunion or a large gathering, her husband will send an update email to all the people who will attend. And he says, as you know, we're in year four of Wendy's illness. What she likes these days are flowers, uh, puppies, receiving postcards in the mail. She cannot greet you by name, but she will recognize your familiarity. And she may grab your elbow and walk with you for a little while. And that's her way of saying, I recognize you and I'm glad to see you. And giving a heads up before the actual encounter enables the entire group at the party to embrace her as she is and not to greet her with avoidance or fear or misunderstanding. And that is such a gift. It's it's incredible. And I try to encourage all caregivers to do something like that in their own lives because it really opens doors to people coming in and being part of help. That's the the dancing, which probably at times can get brisk, but at other times is a slow movement, uh, but always together. There's always partner or partners. Now, I want to 
you to tell us more, please, about your help and advice to family caregivers responding to their challenges. You've already said several things, but I'd like you to just to crystallize what it is that you do offer in the way of help and advice to family caregivers. When I'm actually in the office with these families, there are very many variations on a particular theme, and and, uh, these, these have really been tried and true over time. For the patient, there are four goals that we hope to achieve every day, and that is pain free, feeling safe, able to enjoy some sort of moment during the day, even if it's just I'm sitting in the sun with the dog and nobody's quizzing me on what day it is, and to have as much autonomy or choice as possible. And when I remind the caregivers that this is all they really need to do for the patient on a daily basis, you see these these burdens released and a sense of, oh, I can do that. I know how to do that. When it comes to making sure the patient is pain-free or feeling safe, sometimes we need medication to help achieve this. But these are the things that I remind and reorient the caregivers to time and time again because it's too easy to get swept up in maybe I need to go see another clinic, maybe I should fly into the United States to go to a, a super specialist, maybe I need to try every medication there is, or I should be surfing the Internet to find the cure. But really, I want the caregivers to, to look for this every day. And everything else is icing on that cake. And then... I have to talk to the caregivers and I need to remind them to take care of themselves because if the caregiver burns out or the caregiver becomes ill, or I even had a caregiver who had a heart attack because he wouldn't let anybody else help take care of his wife, my caregiver at the end of each day needs to feel safe, loved, happy, and healthy. That's the concept of metta from Buddhism, a loving kindness that is exerted towards oneself. Everyone wants to be so compassionate and patient and tolerant and accepting of the patient, but we need to be able to give that to ourselves in order to do that for someone else with any genuine meaning behind it. If you're feeling lousy, then you're just overextending yourself, being super nice to somebody who's very irritating or difficult to be with. So caregivers need to feel safe, loved, happy, and healthy, and they may have done so in the old relationship before the dementia, but once the patient becomes unable to have that conversation or to carry their half of the household chores or any of the usual um, activities, then these caregivers may need to turn to old friends, new friends, or professionals in order to achieve the goals of safe, loved, happy, and healthy. But whatever it takes, they need to do it. We're going to go into our break in a moment, but just one one comment back to you. Um, I'm aware of the sense in some people's minds of guilt if they're not driving themselves to their own limits. And in that way, I'm just responding back to you by saying this notion of autonomy and this sense of peace and fulfillment is seems to me anyway a very good way of dealing with this problem of guilt exactly now, you lower okay. the expectations for the caregiver role to things that are actually most important to the patient 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, it is time to take the break. So this is Dr. Gordon Adderley, and my guest is Dr. Tiffany Chow. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio for Powell River. Please stay with us. We will be back. Now you can discover change your, your true world. identity, change your connecting, your life. healthy relationships. to the world that you live in. Tune into Love Yourself with host Dorothy Doctor, the self-love coach. Dorothy is a gifted listener as well as an empowerment expert. She can help you take those first steps toward moving forward in your life and the lives of others. Find your true, authentic self. Love Yourself with Dorothy Doctor is broadcast live every Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. When you make decisions, do you ever find yourself in doubt? Are you trying to figure out what's right with you? Are you ready to truly change your life? Listen for the Access Consciousness Radio Show with the founders of Access Consciousness, Gary Douglas and Dr. Dane Here. Consciousness is all about including everything and judging nothing. Our program will help you break free from your personal limitations and enhance positive change in all areas of your life. Tune in to Access Consciousness, Thursdays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. We're on Facebook along with some of the greatest minds of the world. And that includes you. Visit us on Facebook at Voice America Empowerment. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at FamilyCaregiversUnite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week, Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Tiffany Chow. Our topic is hope and healing for family caregivers caring for family members with Alzheimer's disease. Let's talk now about the role of family caregivers caring for family members with Alzheimer's disease. So, Tiffany, what do you see as the role of family caregivers caring for family members in the sort of circumstances we're talking about? So I will repeat from the earlier segment that really at the end of the day, they are the ones that I'm hoping have made that patient feel pain-free, safe, uh, that they were able to do something that they enjoyed, however small it might be, and that there was some degree, whatever degree of autonomy possible. There's so many other things that the family members can do. Their role on the, they have a role on the healthcare team in that they are members of that team. They know more about the patient's pre-morbid likes and dislikes than anybody else on the healthcare team ever will. So when we are trying to be creative and come up with ways to spend time during the day or to distract the patient away from behaviors that may be disruptive or even, uh, dangerous to their own health, we need that information. The family member, the family caregiver is a wealth of information for what did this person do for a living? 
What did they like to do as a hobby? What do they still do at home when left to their own devices? Because we can sew that into a new program of activities, which will add to that feeling that I succeeded at something meaningful today. We can help together set the patient up for success every day. And we can't do that without some knowledge about the patient from the family members. I think the other thing that comes to mind is the sense of uh, bringing other people into the home. I mentioned earlier that I do want caregivers to accept help from other places. I don't want them to think that they have to do this all by themselves. And at a certain point in the illness, towards the end, there needs to be a discussion about hospice, end-of-life decision-making. The sooner in the course of illness that the patient and the family caregivers can discuss with the healthcare team how they want this to play out, the better off everyone is. It's hard to make these decisions at the last minute. I need my family caregivers to be brave enough to have an honest discussion and let us tell them how this is going to end because then they can involve the patient in the discussions about do you want to stay home? Do you want to be taken care of in a hospital if you are failing? All of these things are very important, and because the illness moves so slowly, patients can weigh in on these decisions, and it makes it so much easier for the family to know down the road that the patient actually asked for this or specified they didn't want that, because then they won't have to argue amongst themselves what dad would have wanted. They can just make sure that dad gets what he was aware of as the decision-making process. Right. Now, you'd um, mentioned the role of the family caregiver, including being a member of the health healthcare team. So let me ask you, how do doctors generally see the role of family caregivers, you know, caring for family members with Alzheimer's? And what are the challenges the role creates for doctors and for family caregivers? I think all doctors, whether they're in academic institutions like me or in private practices, are counting on at least one family member to accompany the patient to all visits so that we can have full reporting on what's going on, um, responses or reactions to medications, uh, a sense of what has changed since the last appointment. Um, there are some families that are really involved, and, and it's wonderful to see so many people actively wanting to be part of that patient's care. But it can be difficult for the healthcare team to have the same conversation over the phone three different times with three different family members. So we usually try to get everyone to agree on one person who's the main communicator between the doctor and nurse and the rest of the family. That's the person who we can do medication changes with over the phone or take a call from to, to understand, oh, there's been a very unexpected change. Let's get the patient in sooner to evaluate what's going on. But we also hold family meetings, and that's where everyone, your neighbor, if your neighbor is involved, a close family friend, um, caregivers who live remotely, uh, but who want to hear it from the doctor's team themselves without having that one primary family caregiver be the translator. We will offer family meetings where we can all sit at the table together, oftentimes without the patient there, so people can ask their terrible questions. And by their terrible questions, it's the questions they're afraid to hear the answers to, such as, how's he doing? How will this end? What if he stops eating? 
but we all need to talk about it together, and it's, it's too much to burden one person with all that decision-making, but we try to do it together as a team, and we can educate each other. And sometimes when I have several family members at the same meeting, I get a much uh, more enriched view of what's been happening in the patient over time because different people observe different things at different times. And uh, so it, it can be a very good experience, and I encourage caregivers to ask for family meetings with the doctor and the nurse at the long-term care facility or at the outpatient clinic or wherever it is because that can help so much getting everybody onto the same page. One of the saddest things is when families are spending a lot of energy fighting with each other because not everybody's on the same page understanding what's going on and what needs to be done. So this is teamwork that really has to deal with communications and can I call it representation? That is, who's speaking for the family in particular situations where that kind of narrow communication is, is the most efficient, but also in such a way that the group, the family as a whole, can attend a meeting and that lead to constructive and useful information exchanges. Have I got that right? Absolutely. And sometimes the family doesn't know who to appoint as the primary caregiver, because none of them has more medical experience than the other. Um, none of them is spending more time with the patient than the other. And we, as the healthcare team, I'm present at the family meeting, so is my nurse, so is the social worker, we can help them come to that decision. We can describe the role of the primary caregiver, and then it'll become obvious maybe through that who it should be. At other times, it's been more difficult, and there have actually been legal proceedings, because one sibling doesn't think the other sibling is doing a good enough job and there's money involved. And uh, our job as a healthcare team is to try to always bring it back to what's best for the patient. I understand the two of you never got along, and I'm not going to fix that. <laughs> what I can do is say, I think really the patient needs this and that. Which of you is going to be the person who signs off on these things? Yeah, very good. Now, that brings us to... Our next, my next question for you is, what help do family caregivers need uh, in fulfilling their role, and where do they find that help? And obviously, you, your clinic, the kind of things you're talking about are fundamental to that, but in general, what help do family caregivers need, and where do they get it from? I know that when patients come to my clinic and they have, uh, maybe in the first appointment we do a lot of testing and then I send them out for more uh, tests such as um, brain scans or to see a neuropsychologist and then come back and I will, at that next appointment, pull it all together and give a diagnosis and come up with a management plan that we will follow together. At that second appointment, I'm telling them so much I cannot expect anybody in that room to remember everything I said and to be able to understand it in the context in which it was meant. So I think family caregivers often need information in writing so that they can see it again. They can see it at a time when they're a little more calm and not as shocked. Sometimes, if that's not available in writing, then at least please give a, a website that I can uh, that you vetted for me, that has good, reliable information, so that you can take your time to digest the information. Do not feel guilty about the fact that you don't get everything all at once. I've been doing this as a physician for, I'm afraid to say how many years now. <laughs> so to me, it's like falling off a log. But for this family, today it's brand new. And so 
We try to give them a packet about the diagnosis in general, and we give them some written information saying, this is what we talked about today, and if you have any questions about this after the appointment, call the nurse, and she's happy to discuss it with you again or reorient you to it or change some of the decisions we made if you've been able to think about it more and you want to go in a different direction. So don't be afraid to ask for the information in writing. That's number one. Number two, again, with this dance of negotiation of, oh, I don't want this to be happening, therefore I will ignore it for as long as I can, and then, okay, it's happening, but we're going to keep it a dark secret inside our household, and then, okay, well, maybe we do need some help. I need caregivers to try to open up to accepting the help that is offered by the healthcare team as soon in the process as possible, because the reason we're offering that is to pace you so you can last through the marathon that is caregiving for dementia. Point number three on this list for me would be to likewise connect with the Alzheimer's Society if that's the diagnosis, or there's an association for frontotemporal degeneration. There are associations for Parkinson's disease, multiple sclerosis. There are different organizations that are professionals at helping caregivers and they have representatives regionally who can really help out. And I've actually been most impressed with Australia. Uh, the Australian Alzheimer's Society is awesome, and a lot of us use their materials uh, because they've been so well-written. Um, the last thing on my list, which is hard, again, for caregivers to do until they've finally been able to open up to the fact that this is now part of their lives, that advice is to reach out to community in an informative way. I mentioned before a caregiver who would broadcast an email before a large gathering and report, this is what Wendy really likes, this is how Wendy communicates, uh, feel free to come on over, please don't have too many, more, too many conversations at the same time. People want to help. Everyone who knows you wants to help, but they don't know how. And it takes a little time on your part to inform them as to how to help, but you don't have to go into an explanation about the whole disease and the medications and the tests that have been done. All they need to hear is, would you please take him to Starbucks every Tuesday morning? And they will do it. And then they will ask you, what else can I do? And that's the way to become part of the community again, despite the fact that you have something pretty major going on in your life. Right. Now, that profoundly important point. We're going to take the break. This is Dr. Gordon Etherly, and my guest is Dr. Tiffany Chow. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety and Empowerment Channels and CJMP 90.1 FM Community Radio for Power River. Please stay with us. We're coming back. We're on Facebook, along with some of the greatest minds of the world, and that includes you. Visit us on Facebook at Voice America Empowerment. Have you ever felt that it's time to get out of the box? Why are you putting that project off? It's already there in your mind. What are you going to do today to change your life tomorrow? Listen for Live Your Life with Melissa Brown. Get ready to expand the capacity of your heart and mind. Move yourself beyond the mundane and get prepared to do what you've been called to do. There is no time like the present, and the whole world is waiting for you. Tune in Monday mornings at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Who are we? Can we really make the world a better place? 
How can the mantle of personal power be most effectively passed from generation to generation? There is no correct answer, but by tuning in to Birthright of Power with Reverends Don and Jane Lewis, the goal is that you will find some help in this journey. What does it mean to be a warrior with multiple meanings of that word? How do we stay strong in the face of changing times? Listen to Birthright of Power, live every Monday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at familycaregiversunite.org. That's D-O-C, the letter G, at familycaregiversunite.org. Don't forget, you can catch new episodes of our program twice every week, Mondays on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and Dr. Tiffany Chow. Our topic is hope and healing for family caregivers caring for family members with Alzheimer's disease. Um, Tiffany, let's talk more about help for family caregivers, caring for family caregivers, and caring for their family members. What I'm talking about here is basically this question. What more do you want to do and see done to help family caregivers in all those ways you've been talking about? I have um, talked about family meetings and having several members of the family present. And one of the most heart-rending types of family meetings is when there are children, children of the patient, who are ages 10 to 18 to 21 come in and I realize that most of the materials that have been written and that are available online are aimed at elderly spousal caregivers. So uh, as you mentioned in the introduction, we have created a website for teenagers uh, and uh, there's an activity book for young children, but there really are not enough widespread child caregiver support groups happening. We're lucky in Toronto that there's a couple of groups, Hospice Toronto and Powerhouse Project, who formed originally to help children who have parents with cancer or another terminal illness like that. They've expanded their repertoires to include parents with traumatic brain injury who have been disabled or multiple sclerosis, and now they're getting to dementia. But I think that's really important, and I think it's even more important that children understand what aging is like what brain health is, increase their brain health awareness because there are things that those children can start to adopt as good health behaviors that will serve them well and help to stave off dementia when they become elderly people themselves. So we've been applying for some grants to get that rolling to increase brain health awareness among children and high school students. We're going to be working with high school um, uh, uh, school boards uh, to put this in and infuse it with uh, primary care interventions. And I'm, I'm really hoping that this will ultimately make an impact on the incidence of dementia. Wow. Tiffany, again, 
what more you would like to see done but this in this question by the healthcare professions and social services to help family caregivers I, I'm really inspired by um, Subi Banerjee in the United Kingdom, who came, who really advocated so strongly and helped organize the national strategy for addressing Alzheimer's disease. We do not have a national strategy in Canada. I think we need to bolster the resources of the Alzheimer's Society here and wherever else so that governments understand that they need to be planning ahead for this. Very locally in Ontario, there's uh, something called Bill 52 that's being uh, championed by Donna Cansfield. And the idea is let's mandate an Alzheimer Advisory Council made up of caregivers, social service providers, physicians who are, are practicing with these patients, and researchers so that we can make sure that healthcare resources are being directed appropriately, not only for patient care and treatment, but also for caregiver support. If you, if you think about how many hours of informal family caregivers, um, it was something like $27 billion in 2007 if you had to pay them an hourly rate for all the care they gave. This is amazing, and it's, it's a much larger number now in 2013. So we need to advocate for policy and the way our healthcare dollars are apportioned so that this can be covered. What's your message for the family caregivers, Tiffany? Uh, there are a couple of messages here, and, uh, and these are messages that I have to tell myself every day. Uh, so it's certainly not anything that becomes, uh, oh, I don't think you can call it a habit. You have to call it a practice because you have to keep consciously working on it. Compassion and loving kindness have to start with self. You're not going to last if you're not doing well yourself. And the second point is equanimity. You have to try your hardest not to take anything personally, yet you can't be indifferent you will remain attached, you will remain compassionate, but this bad day is one bad day among many days, some of which are going to be bad and some of which are going to be really great. And we need to keep that perspective. Please say a little bit more in this message for family caregivers to address that point about guilt that some people don't know how many of them, but some people feel that they are never able to do enough and they go in the direction of exhausting themselves and things of that nature. What's your message for them? My message for the guilty caregiver is you must forgive yourself so that you can move on to a better day tomorrow. That's where the message of compassion and loving kindness has to start with yourself. Yes, you did yell at the patient. You did become impatient today. Try to do it better tomorrow. Why? And reflect upon why you lost it. Is it because you're tired? Is it because he has a behavior that is truly frustrating and dangerous to him and you are afraid of what will happen if it goes on? This is the kind of thing that your healthcare professional can help you with. Maybe he needs medication. Maybe he needs a change in the medication. Maybe he needs more of the same medication. Do not try to do this all by yourself. If you do it by yourself and things don't go well, you'll feel guilty. And 
There's nothing worse for a caregiver than feeling like he's not doing his job well. So bring it back to, has the patient been pain-free today? Does the patient feel safe where he is? Did he have some moment of meaningful activity that was pleasurable? Are we doing everything we can do for the patient? And that's it. You have satisfied your requirements for the day. And almost everybody can do that without having to feel guilty. And that goes back, doesn't it, to what you were saying earlier, and that is the need to make sure that family caregivers have the information they need um, to make the contribution that they want to make and should be making um, that is practicable and that is reasonable and that is going to lead to those moments of... um, shall we call them autonomy, that is where the patient is able to make his or her own decisions, and that sense of enjoyment of the moment, that sense of peace. So that's right, isn't it? The information is pretty critical to the needs. I think that that sense of information needed might also translate to go ahead and ask someone. Caregivers should not feel that everyone assumes they know what they're doing. I think, actually, there's a great analogy in mothers. When women have their first child, people assume that there's some maternal instinct that will allow them to do all these things that you need to do for your child. But breastfeeding isn't that natural, actually. It's not that easy. There are some tricks of the trade that a good wet nurse or, or nurse or your mother can tell you, but they won't tell you unless you ask them. Same thing with this caregiving gig. We don't expect you to know all of the ropes. We're expecting we need to tell you several times, actually, when you finally do ask. Ask. Ask for help. Ask for information. It will be given to you, and it will help. Now, very quick last point in the message question is family caregivers getting together whether through the internet whether physically to to share experiences is that something that you also advocate for them yes i advocate that and it's very interesting there are some people who are very um uh colloquial and they have always discussed what's going on in their lives with someone else. So it's very easy for them to segue into a support group. And there are support groups that can meet by Skype or through email so that people who can't release themselves from the household to go to a meeting physically can still interact with others. But there are a lot of people who don't want to air their dirty laundry or they're afraid of hearing terrible stories about what's going to happen. And that is a major deterrent to caregiver support group um, attendance. I say to those people who don't want to hear somebody else's sad story, I understand what you can get through the Alzheimer's Society usually is one-on-one counseling. Right. Do something to connect with another person, even if it's not a support group. Tiffany, unfortunately, the tyranny of time is upon us. We're going to have to stop now. But I want to say thank you to you and all the people you're working with for what you're doing because it's profoundly inspirational. It's what's needed, and it's that sense of bringing the family, the family caregiver, into the care of the person and recognizing the value of what the family and the family caregivers are actually doing. 
So thank you. I want to say thank you to our listeners. We'd like to hear your comments on this episode. And from our listeners, I'd like to hear about ideas for topics or if you're interested in being a guest on the show. In our next episode, we'll talk about when a family member is dying, a checklist for family caregivers. So that's information. Please join us. Same time, same spot on the Internet. Talk to you then. Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again twice every week, Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel and Tuesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until the next show, we hope our programs help make the coming week easier and more hopeful. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.